The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. April 25th, 26th, our annual missions garage sale. Uh, the last few years we've taken in right at or below or above $20,000 in a morning, uh, in a day, and all that money goes to missions. Last year, uh, that money went specifically to Rwanda, and it just so happens that one of our dear friends, friend of TBC for many years, uh, who happens to be Rwandese, is with us this morning. Would you welcome Celestin Musakora back up here with me? Celestin. Thank you. Thank you. Good to have you, my brother. Good to have you. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. You know, as uh, we talk about uh, Rwanda, we have a few pictures that we'll be showing along the way. The money we raised last year went to Rwanda, specifically to our new sister church there, where your brother-in-law is a pastor. Mm-hmm. And uh, today's a, today, uh, you may not recognize, though, is a, a bittersweet day uh, for all Rwandans. Today, April 6th, uh, tell us why it's a uh, bittersweet day for you and for your nation. Uh, some of you uh, will remember that uh, it was today, April 6th, in 1994, when uh, terrible things started in Rwanda. What became the genocide uh, started April 6th. So it's today when uh, uh, Hutu and Tutsis, because of tribalism and hatred, historical enmity that caused about one million people to be killed in 1994, between April 6th and end of July. And uh, you were directly affected by this. Your village was, your family was, many of your friends were. Tell us a little bit about that. Of course, being uh, a Rwandese, uh, everybody was affected by the genocide. Uh, some immediately during the 90 days of genocide and others uh, after the genocide in the revenge that followed the genocide. So I was affected because of my village, uh, my family members, and uh, uh, my neighbors, my relatives were murdered three years after the initial genocide. But during the genocide, we lost friends and colleagues and neighbors. So everyone in Rwanda was affected by this uh, uh, event that is 20 years today. You were in Kenya at the time doing graduate studies and you knew or heard of the things that were happening there, and obviously it broke your heart and the hearts of those, and God laid upon your heart to begin a ministry because of that. Tell us a little bit about that ministry. Uh, because of the uh, hatred, even though Bernadette and I um, have been pastors in Rwanda, we were in Kenya, getting ready to go back, but immediately we began to feel the Lord was calling us to uh, help the leaders who survived to deal with the anger and bitterness and shame and guilt and we began the ministry that's called uh, African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries, really focusing on how do we develop leaders who teach people how to be more Christians rather than to be more tribal, but also how to use the biblical message of forgiveness and reconciliation to heal our nation, to bring holiness and forgiveness in our nation. The ministry started in 1994 again as a result of genocide. We met you shortly thereafter. I think it was uh, January of 96 that we met, and uh, we we did ministry together, and God has really developed that ministry since then. Uh, By God's grace, again, uh, really, we, uh, as a ministry, we are very grateful uh, to God for TBC, because during the beginning of our ministries, in His grace, God allowed us to get to know TBC. And so in 1996, January, Gary and others came, and helped us to help the pastors to 
deal with the anger to who survived to go back in the ministry. So the ministry has expanded from Rwanda to other seven countries in East Africa. So we are serving in Rwanda where we began and then in Congo, in Burundi, in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Uganda, in Sudan, in South Sudan. And so we have 56 full-time staff in those eight countries and we thank God because TBC has been on the journey with us from the beginning. So we are very grateful. So we, we have the privilege to partner with him. It's been 20 years of ministry, and uh, really from the outset, we were privileged to be a part of that and to see now eight nations, 56 folks, and uh, just a delight. When we met Celeste, we had no idea what this relationship would develop into, and uh, he since came to Dallas, got a Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, after that, we established this relationship. Um, we have some more pictures, I think, that's uh, Rwanda, but now near and dear to your heart uh, is not just your native nation, but also Sudan. Tell us a little bit about uh, what's happening in Sudan. Um, some of you know that uh, for many years, the issues in the north and the south Sudan had been more about persecution of Christians by the Muslim Arabs from the north persecuting the Christian and the animists in the south. But in 2011, two years ago, uh, for, uh, South Sudan became independent. And uh, we thank God for the development. And so in two years, a new nation was born. But unfortunately, because of the, again, the problem of leadership, because of the problem of tribalism, the December 15th last year began what has become violence between the tribes specifically the Dinka and the Newells. South Sudan has about uh, more than 200 different tribe groups, but the biggest of them are Dinkas and Newells. So the president of South Sudan made a decision. Uh, the president is a Dinka. He made a decision. He fired the vice president, who is a Newell, and uh, things began to be uh, political, and lo and behold, what was political became more tribal. And so as we speak, the Dinka and the Newells have been fighting and has affected the whole uh, new nation. And about one million people have been displaced. About 270,000 people are refugees in Sudan. I mean, uh, Sudan, the north, in uh, Ethiopia, in Kenya, in Uganda. And uh, there are many people displaced in the refugee camps or in uh, internally displaced people camps within uh, South Sudan. As uh, uh, the situation has gone again, while in Rwanda we see the healing because the people began to forgive and work together, 20 years later we see again the issue of tribalism raising up in South Sudan. We have pictures. Uh, you can see these folks are in a tent, and that's because uh, conditions are stark there. Uh, they live wherever they can find a place to lay their head. Uh, you can see in the bush, somewhere in the bushes, which you've told me, somewhere in tents and other places. Yeah, most of these, uh, you see, they are lucky to have tents because some of them are in the camps that are run by the, the UN. But the majority of those people, the million people, are living in the bushes, dying there, no support. And so really, by um, uh, living in the tents or in the bushes, People have no access to food. And uh, really part of uh, what this church did also uh, for me to come uh, today to say thank you is because when things happen like this, the people who are affected, everybody is affected. But the challenge is when the government soldiers and the government 
politicians are causing havoc and, and, and rape and calamity, the church begins to bring healing and reconciliation. Unfortunately, in some situation, the pastors have gone through the same thing. So our ministry uh, from, again, 20 years ago, when Gary and the others came, we began by how do we have the pastors to deal with the uh, basic needs? How can we get them clothes? How can we get them Bibles? And so this church was one of those churches that began helping us with the needs in Sudan so that we can not only help these pastors to deal with the physical needs, but we begin to help them understand how to deal with the anger, how to deal with the trauma, how to deal with the hatred, so they can begin to preach forgiveness and reconciliation. So that's really why I'm here, mainly is to thank you for the 20 years of journeying with us, and specifically for this last uh, two months, how you have helped the pastor in South Sudan. We've had the privilege to send out of our missions fund, as many of you know, 20% of uh, our general fund goes straight to missions, and we've been able to participate and help some of these pastors have food to eat. I mean, it's that basic, and uh, also some of the basic things in life. Celestin leaves for Sudan on uh, this coming weekend, Saturday or Sunday, and a uh, great opportunity to bring reconciliation and peace. Tell us a little bit about that uh, particular time. Uh, God uh, continued to uh, open doors for us, and... Uh, to deal with these challenges. So the churches in the South Sudan, they have realized that they have not continued with the anger or with their tribe. They need to begin to say, how can the church become an instrument of hope and healing and reconciliation? So they have asked the alarm. And our staff, I was sharing with you that our staff in Burundi, in Rwanda, have been in South Sudan. And I live on Sunday, two, three, one trip, but I will be in the north. As you know, the north... The Christians are minority. They have been persecuted. But by God's grace, God has opened doors that uh, uh, next week, Monday, um, a week from tomorrow, in the north, I'll be having uh, Muslim religious leaders and Christian leaders together to talk about dialogue of how they can stop burning each other's homes, especially how the Christian Muslims can begin to live together in harmony without killing each other. Then from the north, I go to the south, uh, be with pastors to begin to work on trauma healing, forgiveness, and biblical reconciliation. So it's uh, tough in the north, and uh, actually both, and so we ask you to pray for us. We're going to pray right now. Uh, obviously, these are not safe places, and so we're going to pray for physical protection. We're going to pray for emotional well-being. We're going to pray for spiritual strength. So as he goes and ministers, uh, it's a delight. You know, I, I don't know what a New Testament uh, church-age prophet looks like, but it's got to be close to this. And uh, as he goes to represent the Savior in these places with those around him, uh, we want to continue to partner with him, be a part of that. Uh, we can't go, but we can pray and we can give. So. And you have been sending me and, uh, and Bernadette, and you have been taking care of our daughter. So that's, that's more than we can ask. Where's Bernadette? Is she out there somewhere? Uh, she's there. Oh, yeah. There she is. <laughs> Hello, Bernadette. Let's pray. Would you place your hands in this direction? Father, it's with great joy that we, uh, that we stand with our brother. It's with great joy that uh, we send him once again. It's with great joy that we intercede on his behalf. We pray for safety, Father, physical safety, emotional safety, spiritual strengthening. Prepare the hearts of those that he's going to. Let them receive the word of God implanted, and may it bear fruit. Father, we pray that uh, pray for these nations, Father. We pray for the struggles, the turmoil, the battles that are there. We recognize at times like this that many will turn to you. I pray that many would do that. There would be great revival in Sudan, in South Sudan, 
Father, in these other nations where there's peace right now, Rwanda, Tanzania, Kenya, I pray that in the midst of peace they would seek out a Savior. So, Father, we, we give to you our brother and pray you'd use him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you thank Celestin for being with us again once thank more. You, thank you. you thank you for your generosity. Thank you. Chapter 14, Mark chapter 14. Beginning in verse 1, now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days off, and chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. When we come to the final week of uh, Christ's life, there are a lot of different reactions to our Savior. Uh, some reject him, some betray him, some deny him, some adore him. The, the final week of Jesus' life is filled with various reactions, and they reveal the hearts of those around him. The first reaction we see is in verses 1 and 2. It's from the religious leaders. The religious leaders now decide they've had enough with Jesus. Enough is enough. He had upset their world. He had gone into the temple. He had turned over the money changer tables. He had created havoc in the midst of the place that they called home. He had challenged their teachings. He had called them hypocrites. He had um, called them out in front of others that respected them. He answered their questions in such a way that they were embarrassed for asking the questions. He called himself the Messiah, the Son of God. He told the masses he was greater than Father Abraham and greater than King David. Enough was enough. And so when you look at verses 1 and 2, you see early on that the first response to those and the first reaction to those in the time of Christ in the first century in the Passion Week was one of rejection. They decided enough was enough. They wanted no more. And so they planned how to kidnap him and how to kill him. There's another reaction to our Savior at this time. It's the reaction of one of his disciples named Judas. His story picks up in verse 10 of this chapter. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And they were glad when they heard this and they promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray Jesus at an opportune time. Judas had followed Christ for three years. He was trusted enough by the other disciples to be the treasurer of the group of disciples that were there. But in spite of all that he heard, in spite of all that Judas did, Judas followed Christ only as far as the gate of the kingdom, but never came through. He, he came up to the gate of the kingdom, but he never walked through that gate. As one author I read recently said, Judas, what a tragedy. Feet that walk close to Christ, but a heart that lag far behind. Feet that walk close to Christ, but a heart that lag far behind. When Jesus called his disciples together for the final Passover at the section that we're looking at today, beginning in verse 17, it was the evening before Passover they came to celebrate. It was the evening before because a nation would be preparing Passover lambs. God was preparing his lamb as well. God was preparing his son as well. The perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb gathered by the nation so that they could celebrate Passover, remembering the time when they were freed from Egypt's rule, remembering the time when the death angel came and they had been freed from Pharaoh's tyrannical rule, and now they would honor the nation, they would honor that time within the nation year after year after year. On this Passover, the pure, unblemished, spotless lamb was to be sacrificed as well. That lamb would be a savior. In just a few short days, we would find that he would be the one who would be hanging on a crossbeam. It was his blood that would be spilled on the doorpost, so to speak. Judas, one of the twelve, as you know the story, decided it was time to betray him. Actually, the time had come. Jesus calls him out and says, it's the one who will dip with me. 
You see at Passover, the first morsel, the first bite, will be taken by the master of ceremonies, and on a piece of unleavened bread, a piece of lamb, bits of lamb would be placed on it, and, and the most honored guest would be given the first bite. On this night, it would be Judas. On this night, it would be Judas. Judas would be honored by Christ. I I think he's given him an opportunity to back out, but Satan recognizes this. And in John's gospel, it says Satan, seeing Judas, entered him. And so before Judas could back out and do his dastardly deed, Satan himself entered into Judas's very own body so that he would not back away. And when Jesus looked at Judas and mentioned that he would be the one who betrayed, Judas runs out the door. They go their separate ways, not just for a night, but for all of eternity. Separated. Two different ways. Two different trees. Two different destinies. If you remember the words of Christ in one of the other Gospels, he tells Judas, whatever you do, do quickly. Don't waste time. Get the deed done. It would be the last command that Judas would obey because he would leave that place and he would do it quickly. He he, he would have this last moment with the Savior. It would be a moment in the garden where he would betray the one that he loved. Judas was a practical man. He came to the garden and Jesus was there. And as you know, the scriptures tell us, in fact, it tells us a little later on in the same gospel that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. We drop all the way down to verse 43. It says, immediately while he was speaking, Judas came up. He had all these people gathered around him and he who was betraying him gave him a signal. He said, whomever I kiss, he is the one. And so he came and he kissed the Savior. It was a kiss of death. It was a kiss of betrayal. It was a kiss of a traitor, one who turned his back. See, Judas was a practical man, but Judas was not a faithful man. Judas was a pragmatic man, but Judas was not a repentant man. Judas wanted temporal things, not eternal things. Judas's vision was blinded by the world, even though he walked right next to the light of the world. Judas hungered for the things of this life, even though he walked with the bread of life. Judas was one who wanted to be part of a kingdom, but not a spiritual kingdom, part of an earthly kingdom. So Judas turned his back on the Savior. The tragic study of being so close, but so far. Being so close, but so far. You ever been so close to something you really wanted? So close, but you just couldn't quite grasp it. Couldn't quite get it. I've shared with you before, if you've been here for a number of years, one of my dreams is to catch a foul ball at a baseball game, at a Major League Baseball game. And uh, about three years ago, one of the men who comes to Thursday morning Bible study goes to a different church, invited us, and, and we're sitting in row three next to the Rangers' dugout. And do you know that if there's a right-handed batter, uh, first base dugout, we're a first base dugout, you know if there's a right-handed batter, he's going to swing late, the ball's going to come in our direction. Sure enough, in the first inning, there's a ball coming right in our direction. There was a kid in front of me. What do you do? Do you push the kid away and grab the ball, which you could have easily done at my size? All my life I've wanted a foul ball. All I've got to do is that and reach down and it's mine. And probably it'll be on video to show all of you the rest of my life. So the ball rattles around, the kid picks it up, and away he goes. So close, but so far. Right there within my grasp. Right there. 
I've told you, if you've been here for any time, we, we have gotten one ball at a baseball game. We were at a New Orleans Zephyr minor league game, and uh, minor leaguers are, you know, ages 18 to 22 or so, and we're re- literally on the first row, and actually Coach McMurtry at uh, TC was the uh, pitching coach at uh, the Zephyrs uh, that year, and uh, we're sitting in the front row. My daughter's sitting next to me. She's in high school. She's an attractive young lady, and uh, we're sitting there, and I notice that we're right where the guy's warming up who's going to play, and uh, I notice after about every third pitch he turns looks at my daughter turns looks at my daughter so I told Sarah I said Sarah when he finishes warming up I want you to do one thing for me I want you to wink at him and see what happens <laughs> sure enough he uh, takes one final look uh, at her after he finishes warm up she winks at him and he tosses her a ball just like that <laughs> that dude would never toss me a ball I guarantee you that <laughs> so close but so far she has that ball even right now In front of me, next to me, but never mind. That was Judas. So close, but so far. Walked next to the Savior. Passed out the bread and the fish when they multiplied it for the 4,000 and 5,000. When Jesus sent him out two by two, Judas went out and he cast out demons and he healed the sick and he preached the gospel. But he never believed it himself. He was given the power of by Christ to do the things for Christ, but never trusted in Christ himself. So he betrays the Savior. He betrays the Savior. For any of you who have been betrayed by parents, by a spouse, by in-laws, by colleagues, by close friends, our Savior knows what it's like to be betrayed. Here's your colleague in arms. Here's your colleague in battle. Our Savior knows what it's like to be betrayed. Well, Judas climbed a hill of regret after betraying the Savior. You're familiar with the story. The scriptures tell us that Judas went out and hanged himself. While Jesus was climbing up the hill of Calvary, Judas was climbing the hill of regret. He walked it alone. His trail was rock-strewn with shame and hurt and guilt. The landscape was barren. Thorns of remorse tore at his soul. Grief filled his heart. All he could do was to kill himself because of the deed he had done. He had failed the Savior, and rather turning to the Savior, he turned away from the Savior and took his own life. Some of you are close to the Savior. But have you walked through the gates of the kingdom with the Savior? Yeah, I I think the parallel in our day and age, especially in Texas and the Bible Belt, there are many people who show up to church week after week after week after week, and they never truly know Christ. They know about Christ, but don't know Christ. Do you? And some of you know Christ, but your feet are lagging behind now. Your heart was once red hot for the Savior. You would have gotten on a plane next weekend to go with Celeste and risk everything you had, but now you don't even have time to spend in the presence of the Savior. Your heart has grown cold. The distance has grown far. And you no longer walk the way you once walked. You lag behind. And you need to come home. Jesus experienced the pain of rejection. The pain of betrayal by Judas. What do you do when you're betrayed? You get even. You get mad. You get bitter. That's not what Jesus does. In fact, we see what he does through another friend named Peter. And we're familiar with Peter's story. In fact, as I wrote my notes, I thought we're too familiar with this story. It rolls from our tongue with great ease. In fact, I could probably call any kid up here and they could tell you about Peter's denial of Christ. 
It's a very familiar story. So I thought in my mind, how, how do you talk about something that's so familiar to make it interesting? <laughs> you really don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to make it interesting. The story in itself is compelling. The, the story in itself grips us because we have all been like Peter at some time. But as I thought about it, I thought maybe I could tell it from the first person for you this morning just for a couple of minutes. See, I was fishing that day, but my mind was a thousand miles away. My mind was roiling like the ocean or like the sea had been rolling before. Now my mind is roiling back and forth over and over. I wasn't thinking about the nets we were casting. That's a numbless, mindless job. I'd done it a million times. But now my mind was going back just a few short nights ago. It was going back to where I heard the clinging of swords. It went back to the time where I pulled my sword out and chopped a guy's ear off thinking I was defending the Savior. And he told me to put it away. And then it fast forward even to just a few hours later and I still can't believe what I did. I, the one who spoke up and said, no matter what they do, I'll never deny you. I did the unthinkable. The closest friend I've ever had in life. I turned my back on him. You see, I followed him into Jerusalem. I wanted to see what they were going to do with my friend, with, with Jesus, the one I'd followed for the last three years. But I kept my distance. I watched from a distance. I, I didn't want to be right with him because I didn't want to go through the things he might go through. So I stood off in the shadows. They came to me as I warmed my hands around the campfire that night. And as I warmed my hands, one of them looked at me and said, You're one of them, aren't you? And I said, No, I'm not because I was scared to death. And a second time they asked me, You're one of them. And I I denied it. Then a third time they asked me. And I cursed them. Words like that had not flowed from my lips in years. I was so scared. And now as I fish, all I can think is, Peter, what were you doing? Peter, how could you do it? He loved you, Peter. And I turned my back on him. His moment of greatest need, when he needed me more than ever, (laughs) I walked away. walked away. There came a voice from the seashore and it said, cast on the other side. And we thought, well, we might as well because the fishing had been bad. So we threw our nets on the other side. And when we pulled on them, they were full. And there's a feeling in the situation we were in before. And I think it was John who screamed, it's Jesus. And without thinking, I jumped into the sea and swam to the shore. And only as he could do, he did it. We were all there, but he looked at me. We were at a campfire, reminiscent of where I had been just a few short nights before. And he looked at me and nobody else. And he said, Peter, do you love me? (laughs) My eyes filled with tears. He was questioning my allegiance, and he had every right to do so. Yes, Lord, I love you. Then Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? (laughs) 
I hung my head in shame. He didn't believe me. Yes, Lord, I love you. Then Peter, tend my flock. Then a third time. A third time. He still didn't believe me. Peter, do you love me? And then it hit me. Three times I denied him. Now three times he gives me an opportunity to be reconciled. Lord, I love you. I love you. We can all relate to Peter, can't we? See, we've all failed along the way. The good news is Jesus loves those who fall and fail. Chrysostom, the great golden mouth orator of the second or third century, said, the issue is not that we fall. The issue is if we stay down. We're all going to fall. Peter's story is a classic case. It's the greatest example we have in all the scriptures of those who fall away having the opportunity to recognize that failure does not have to be final, but we can come to our Savior. We can repent. We can be reconciled. His arms are always open. He is always accepting. Some of you say, Pastor G, you have no idea how, how, how the things I've done, how far away I am, the thoughts I've thought, and where I am right now. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. On those cross beams where that blood was spilt, Peter, who was weeping on the side, Peter, whose heart was broken, was restored by a loving Savior. He'll restore yours as well. Some involved in things you're thinking, God can never forgive me. He can forgive me. He will forgive you if you'll come to him and admit that and not be mired in the muck of that stuff or the guilt afterwards. Follow the example of Jesus too. See, the example of Jesus is one of open arms to one who betrayed him, one who denied him, one who turned against him and So a great application for us is some of us need to run back to the Savior. The other application is some of us need to seek forgiveness from others. See, some of us have been wounded deeply. Some of us are are drowning in the bitterness that Celestin talked about from the the various pastors and folks in, in Sudan and other places. And we need to offer forgiveness and extend forgiveness to others. One of the greatest displays I've ever seen of that was from Celestin and Bernadette, actually. See, after they got back to the States, one of the things that happened, the killings had stopped, but there were some marauders who came in and they raided the village where Celestin was from. I got a phone call from Dallas one night. It was from Celestin, and it said, uh, we've gotten word that my mother and my father, my sister, my brother-in-law, and their children have all been murdered. All been murdered. We later found out that his mother and one of the babies had survived, but his father, his sister, brother-in-law, one of their children all been murdered. And so in a few days we went to Dallas to be together. We had a memorial service at Dallas Theological Seminary. And the thing that sticks out in my mind is uh, the bulletin that I received, a little program when you walked in, I began looking at it, and I was to have the privilege of preaching at this memorial service. And the last paragraph, Celestine had shared with me that His family had gathered together, the four kids and he and Bernadette. And the last paragraph of that program said, to those who've taken the lives of those that we love the most, 
To you we offer the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. Wow. His family had just been murdered. And they offer forgiveness. And we walk around carrying burdens that we will not forgive. That pale in comparison. But ultimately, we forgive because of how much we've been forgiven. In fact, it was uh, Locato who said, you'll never forgive anyone more than God has already forgiven you. It was Piper who said, when you forgive someone, you set a prisoner free, and that prisoner is you. And it's uh, William Ward who says, forgiveness is a key that unlocks a door of resentment and the handcuffs of hate. It's a power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. Who do you need to forgive? See, some of you walk around just filled with anger and bitterness. And the load is so heavy, you're depressed, can't get out of bed and struggle. You're the prisoner. You can unlock the door of resentment today. Drop the handcuffs of hate. Break the chains of bitterness and be set free from the shackles of selfishness. Would you do that? There's one final reaction in Mark chapter 14. By the way, all this comes out of Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3. It's the reaction of Mary. This is Mary, whose brother is Lazarus, whose sister is Martha. They're in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. That's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are from. Uh, They're reclining at a table. If you fill in the blanks from the other Gospels, there's a banquet taking place. Simon the leper has invited Jesus, Lazarus, the disciples, to be in his home. They're all there. The banquet is taking place. Probably if if we could be there, we could smell the bread baking. Uh, We we could see the wine being poured. Uh, We we could... uh, Uh, We could feel the breeze coming through the room. And as this is happening, Mary stealthily comes into the room and she desires to worship the Savior. She knows that his days are short. She knows he's headed to the cross. She knows his death is about to come. And so Mary wants to worship her Savior. She comes in with the most prized possession she owns. It's a pure bottle of Nord. If you look at verse 5, the perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. That's a year's worth of wages. This is an expensive gift, the most precious thing she has. One year's wages she's going to pour out upon the Savior. In verse 3, they're reclining. She breaks the bottle of Nord over the head of Jesus. She pours it out. She anoints him. And she's in the midst of pure worship of our Savior. The reason she does it, she knows that Christ is about to die and be buried. How do I know that? Because in verse 8 it says, uh, she anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Pure, unadulterated worship. She walks in with the best she has, the most expensive thing she owns, the purest way that she possibly can, not in front of a crowd, not in front of hundreds, but in a room where she could come to the Savior and, and anoint him and honor him and worship him. Mary's sacrifice was that of pure worship. She takes that alabaster vial of perfume and she breaks it over the Savior. But from the other Gospels, it tells us Judas spoke up. 
of all the people to speak up, this is just before the betrayal, Judah speaks up and says, why did she do that? We could have fed the poor with that. And in a moment of pure worship, you can see Mary's face turning sullen, turning white with embarrassment, then red with embarrassment, and she wanted to run as quickly as she had come in. Judas called her out and said, how dare you spend that money on... uh, on... (laughs) That's the problem, isn't it? How dare you give your best to the Savior? How dare you? What's your alabaster jar of perfume? What's your most prized possession? Are you willing to lay it on the altar for the Savior? Are you an Abraham willing to lay down your Isaac? A Mary willing to lay down her perfume? Willing to lay forth that which is the most valuable thing you have and saying, God, use it to your glory. At that moment, I don't know how it happened. I don't know if Jesus took the hands of Mary and cupped them and looked her in the eyes or at a distance looked her, but I know I would not want the look that Jesus had toward Judas at that moment. Because Jesus steps in and defends this one who worships him. And he says, leave her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good thing. The poor will always be here, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She gave her best. She anointed my body before the burial. I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that what this woman has done will be spoken of. 2,000 years later, Temple, Texas, we speak of Mary worshiping the Savior purely because Christ said, whenever people think about my Passion Week, they're going to think about Mary. That pure alabaster vial of perfume, her very best, broken for the Savior. You see, when you pull back the curtains on Bethlehem and look in a manger, you know what you see? A pure bottle alabaster perfume. The best. The sweetest gift the Father could give. His Son. And then you fast forward, and that bottle is broken at a place called Calvary. And that sweet perfume is poured out as blood on a cross. So that you and I might worship him as purely as Mary did. What's your reaction to the Savior? Some rejected, some betrayed, one denied, one adored. He offers the sweet perfume of his life for you. How could you not worship him and obey him and honor him this day? Charles Templeton wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Templeton had been a pastor in Toronto, Canada, of two of the largest, I'm sorry, the largest, one of the largest churches in all of Canada. He helped bring Youth for Christ, it's the parallel organization to Young Life to Canada. 
He preached the gospel from the pulpit in Toronto for about eight years, ten years. Many people came to faith. Many kids came to faith through Youth for Christ in Canada. He counted Billy Graham as one of his closest friends. And he turned away. Not because of moral failure, not because of taking that which is not his. He just quit believing. Quit believing. Denied the Savior, wrote the book. He became the publisher of two of the largest newspapers in all of Canada, ran for prime minister and lost. Lee Strobel, who's written a number of books called The Case For, and writing The Case for Christ, decided he would interview Charles Templeton. He interviewed Templeton and he asked him why it is that he walked away from the faith and now denied the faith. And Templeton went on and on about the God of the Old Testament, a God of anger, a God of hate, a God of killing, a God of... And Strobel writes, I looked at Sir Charles and said, what about Jesus? And there was deathly, a deathly silence in the room. And he said, I watched as this man of great prestige and great wealth. So his lips began to quiver. Tears filled his eyes. He said three words. I miss him. What about Jesus? I miss him. I miss him. What about you and Jesus? Rejection, betrayal, denial, or adoration? Don't miss them. Father, as our hearts are turned to the Savior, our hearts are turned towards the Easter season, a time of death, burial, and resurrection, we don't want to miss Jesus. We want to cling to Him. We want to trust in Him and Him alone for eternal life, for forgiveness of sin. We don't want to come to Him and walk away in denial. We don't want to. We do not want to walk close to Him, but not know Him. We want to come in pure, unadulterated worship to honor Him. So, Father, we thank you for the gift. The gift you placed in the manger, the gift that went to the cross. So that we might have the gift of eternal life. The gift of Jesus. We thank you for him. In his name. Amen. We're dismissed.